Puh. Tell you what, this is a crazy place right now. Start of this decade, so much upheaval, so much disruption. What can we do about it? How can we think more clearly? How can our thinking and feeling help to inform wise action? What are we? Why are we the way we are? What are we doing? Can we change it? How are we doing it? How can we do it better? Why should we do anything at all? All these questions, the deepest questions of all, they are more prescient now than ever. Seems to be time we awaken into asking them and meeting those questions, full-blooded, open, present. So this then, it's a conversation with Jordan Hall. You can think about Jordan as a futurist if you're not aware of his work. Brilliant mind. In fact, you know what, I think it probably would be a good idea to introduce Jordan a little bit more. And I found it pretty hard to do that freeform, given there's quite a bit to say. So in this case, what I've done is compile a bio of Jordan's. and I'm going to read it out to you. So here's a reading voice. He's been a multiple tech entrepreneur and angel investor. He was on the founding team of mp3.com, which made early moves to decentralize the music industry and then went on to found DivX which made the first critical move in developing the video technology, which ultimately laid the pathway for things like YouTube and Vimeo. After exiting DivX, he joined the Santa Fe Institute, a world-renowned home of complexity science, and became involved in topics including futurism, artificial intelligence, complex evolutionary dynamics, conflict management, and crisis management. During that time, he became a co-founder of Game B, a design space for the development of an alternative to Game A, or the story of civilization so far, understood to be on a self-terminating track. With a grounding in deep philosophy and years of practice as part of the Deep Code Collective Intelligence Project, Jordan exemplifies an artfulness in dialogue that's particularly resonant with this project. In this conversation, we discuss some of the core thinking behind his more recent Civian project, which seeks to bring together decades of thought and research relating to civilization design. In what follows, you'll hear an account of the problem of civilization, a hopeful recourse of response, and some altogether beautiful thought, it seems to me. So, as we're about to enter the podcast proper, let me just say this. These conversations are experiments in synergy, where multiple parts join together to create something more than what's possible individually, hopefully, but by no means necessarily, kind of philosophical art. I hope they're enjoyable, perhaps even confronting at times, but ultimately hopeful and even deeply educational. They're intended to be metabolized as part of a deeper journey of creation, one we're all a part of already, of course. But in this case, they're also explicitly invitations to participate in generative interaction and to live in a way that helps you develop who you are so as to more effectively participate in something greater than yourself and to appropriately help others to do the same. Part of this project involves ongoing experiments with protocols that help to develop integrous, artful and effective communication We run frequent events in our community network that aim to build communitas while doing just this. You can visit voicecraft.io to investigate further and consider supporting this project on Patreon to access early releases and more content. And of course to get involved and ultimately to help this thing breathe. It's a full-time thing to make this happen. It can happen. It is happening. Beautiful things are taking place and they're rippling. Thanks for sticking with me. Here we go. 
dating's good. Yeah, dating's good. Dating's good. So I don't know if you've been following Melbourne, but we're in curfew here. Curfew. We have been for the last four weeks. Yeah, so we can leave the house between 5 a.m. and 8 p.m. and go no more than five kilometers away for one hour a day, one person shopping <laughs> at a time. Good heavens. For how long? Four weeks. Hmm, Two more that's interesting. Left. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting bring up dating. And I think, well, what you see behind me, that's been date space for basically the whole year. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. There's something about, especially when taking all that we could talk about together and then condensing that into an hour from a place where it's like, oh yeah, I'm actually under curfew right now. I mean, I'm going to be here the whole time basically just doing this. Um, <laughs> but, but to condense and sort of pull through, you know, um, that right place of well it's something like well what is it when two minds come together to do something of value this seems to be this seems to be core well i what i see is i see my daughter um playing with that do you want to, are we recording yeah we are good um i see my daughter playing with that toy that many kids have which has um blocks of different shapes and holes of different shapes um and of course, the task is to figure out how to fit the right block in the right shaped hole. Um, and you know, I actually am, am now seeing even the specific, how do you call it, development of capacity or development of skillfulness, where she can pick up the block, she can look at it, she can rotate it, grasp which one it is, map it to something in her that tells her what hole it goes into, and then put it in the hole, like no experiments at all. And that's actually, I think, a really good metaphor. Now, we've got mm-hmm. some number of blocks that we're dealing with. Um, it's larger than four. Um, and we've got some number of holes we're dealing with. And yeah. the, the task is to figure out how rapidly can we take the complex space of possibility that is the union of our two specific complex spaces of possibility and collapse it down to the moment that is the highest quality event that this particular moment calls for. And that's, I think, a, in this conversation, but also I would say in general, like this is a very high thing for us to be getting better and better at doing. Yeah, absolutely. So when I messaged you, I did say that speaking about Civium could be a good idea. Sure, it's very ripe. Yeah, um, it provides a beautiful basis, I think, to begin to pull in other things and perhaps when ultimately lay the blocks down in the correct order. I think that's pretty much what it's about in the knowledge that those blocks are to be replaced (laughs) appropriately as well. So it seems like it would be a good thing to you know, ask you to introduce the notion of Civium to the kind of interested party that might not have heard you discuss it before, but is distinctly aware that we need to build differently and things are changing. And uh, it's the kind of person that likes to consider themselves, well, I'm, I'm ready for change, you know, and I'm willing to, and actually I have the means to participate in some form. I'm willing to put in the time to understand I'm interested in coming into a quality interaction, interested okay. to participate so in that, please. So the way I, I think I maybe will begin is something like at the level of design, um, perhaps even just a bit of a critique. So we've, we've endeavored, we meaning humanity, have endeavored, uh, of course, many times to reinvent the way that we congregate, the way that we live together. And in the past several centuries have done so in ways that are endeavoring to, to, to do it in a way that is, I would say, conscious or intentional, right? Thoughtful. 
as opposed to merely uh, functional, which is been the was the order of the day for a long period of time. And what I would say is different about the notion of civium is that the the design intent came from the very beginning with a, a proposition that uh, the problem that we're trying to to deal with is well, let me just begin by saying rather deep, and it's maybe the problem of civilization itself. So. We're not just trying to figure out how to create sort of a nice place to live, for example, or even a place that is ecologically sound, um, because there's a, uh, an awareness of the implications and complications of the total set of things that we do under the heading of civilization that need to be considered, and that the, uh, you know, the, the, the effort or the best intentions will tend to be unraveled or uh, will fail, or sometimes even create negative consequences in a very micro case, if you don't actually think about the global case as well. So that's maybe in the very beginnings. Is there a way to put your arms around it where the the strength of your design is adequate to something that actually shifts the underlying basis of the, the deeper problem, which I'll just right now call the problem of civilization. Uh, another language I will call the problem of game A. Um, and, and therefore is, at least in principle, Able, able to address that set of problems effectively and create something which is enduring. Now, it's really interesting that in the past six months, I've been exposed to the work of one of your, uh, somebody who lives near you, I think, actually, Tyson Yankapurta, um, because he, coming from a rather different direction, ended up coming to some very similar conclusions, and I might be using some of his ideas. So the first is the proposition that, in fact, in many ways, the problem of civilization is also the problem of city. That it may in fact be appropriate to say that all civilizations are merely the sort of actuation adjunct of cities. And so whether you're talking about Roman Empire, or you're talking about the British Empire, or you're talking about the American Empire, or I suppose you can go backwards and talk about the city-states of Greece, in each case, the extended territory, um, as significant as it was, may in fact be properly seen as being something like the circulatory system of the city, which was at the, the essence of it, and, and the network of cities, by the way. And this is based, from my point of view, largely on the work of uh, uh, Jeffrey West and Louis Betancourt, which popularized in the book Scale. So that's a very, very interesting notion. Um, and the next question would be, okay, why? And, and more specifically, what kinds of changes would be the adequate changes to, to shift that? And here again, uh, Tyson, I think, is the nail on the head when he makes a distinction between what he calls growth and increase. So here, the notion is that, well, again, Weston Betancourt, they noticed that cities have a unique scaling characteristic, uh, which is to say that as a city grows, certain metrics, uh, like, say, for example, wealth per capita, grow in a very unusual way. Uh, generally speaking in nature, what we see is that when an organism, and that might include, say, like an ecosystem, like a forest, or a, a part of what we might consider an organism like a cell, as, as, the, as the organism grows, uh, most of the relevant characteristics grow on what's called a, a, a sublinear scaling. So what this means is, for example, if I take a, a mouse and I look at the, the rate of metabolism per unit mass, meaning how much energy is cycling through the organism uh, for the total mass in grams, if I increase the mass, the actual metabolism only increases at 
uh, about 85%. So if I double the mass, um, instead of the metabolism doubling, it only increases by 85%, which is to say that uh, there's a certain um, efficiency built in and also certain limitations to scale built in to biological organisms. And this is common across all living organisms and in fact, in common across human organisms as well, like corporations have a similar scaling factor. If I double the number of employees in a company, I actually don't double the uh, revenue per employee. I actually tend to, it tends to increase, uh, sorry, decrease per employee. But cities behave differently. Uh, Betancourt and uh, West discovered that they actually increase super linear, which is to say, if I double the size of a city, and, and by the way, in, in some sense, hold everything else constant, uh, I will actually get a uh, 115% increase of the wealth per capita, or in, income per capita, if you prefer. Now, that's actually a super, super powerful discovery. And one of the characteristics, so, so now I'm kind of going off on my own, um, uh, what's that called? I'm walking my own plank now. So what, what I would propose is that this creates, makes the city a certain kind of a growth attractor. What the city has been trying to do throughout history, since we discovered the construct of the city, has been to grow, to put as many people as possible in the city as it can get. Um, and sort of every problem context of cities, and therefore every problem context of civilizations that are attached to them, has to do with the constraints on that ability. So for example, if I put, uh, say, a million people in a city, I have to feed a million people. And if the only way that I can feed people is by hauling uh, uh, wheat in uh, on people's shoulders in bags, I can't pull that off very easily. That's hard to do, more or less impossible. So I have to do things like invent roads or invent barges. So there's a, ratio, a relationship between, on the one hand, the physical constraints that are associated with squeezing human bodies into physical space in terms of largely energy coming in and waste going out, but also what they need to do other things like meet other people and move around in the space, transportation and whatnot. The technological capacity of the environment that we're in and then the, the limitations to scale that are, are possible. Right? And so effectively, every city is, is trying to, to solve that problem. And what, again, what Weston Betancourt found was that there was a, uh, a, a moment where the city would tend to grow uh, up to the limits of the existing technology. But remember, because as cities grow, the actual certain characteristics increase super linearly, well, one of those, in, those characteristics is actually innovation. So as the cities would grow in, in uh, population, the innovation of that particular city and therefore that civilization would actually tend to also go super linearly. So you get these explosions of innovation, which would tend to cluster around constraints to growth. Um, and so you would tend to get these step functions where they'd actually pulse. And, and then, of course, you'd get things that were much, much larger than had previously existed in the world around them, you know, like the, the first cities, you know, Ur and, and Akkad and places like that. Until eventually they do peter out. And something happens which limits their capacity to grow. So this, 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 um, this sort of mammon desire to, to grow at all costs and the kind of the imperial organization of all space and to some extent all time as a uh, subsidiary function to feed the growth of the city is a really interesting way of thinking about what's the problem of civilization. You know, everything ultimately becomes a feedstock. Every uh, small town exists largely as a consequence of its context in the relationship to the capacity of it to serve as a way of feeding the growth of the, of the city. 
all the way up the chain to the largest cities and ultimately, I guess, megalopolises and conurbations that are now dominate our landscape. Okay. So then, and then what Tyson does is he, he presents an alternative and, and, and here he specifically presents an alternative that was real in the context of the uh, uh, indigenous human groups, which he calls increase. Uh, and I, I, I love his metaphor actually. He says, okay, if I want to uh, increase or, or improve, let's just go with a very simple metric, uh, IQ in a human, um, broadly speaking, there's two things I might do. I could grow the number of neurons. I could just make it a larger brain. It can take a brain that weighs 10 kilograms and make it a brain that weighs 15 kilograms. Or I could increase the quality of the brain. I could increase the, not just the number of, of, of neural connections, uh, the synapses inside, but also the quality, which ones specifically are networking with which ones, right? the network topology. And I, what I love about that metaphor is that it's real. Right? Human beings actually ran into a limit on how rapidly or how big we could get our brains because of the, the birth canal. And so we ran into that limit. We were, well, evolution was forced to find a way to continue to increase our, our cognitive capacities by virtue of, of increase, meaning if you think about development, these processes of development, the brain will actually create a huge number of connections then prune the hell out of them, then you know, increase again, all focusing on not more neurons, but on better connections. Okay, well, that's nice. That, that's a move, right? So the move is to say, okay, we need to find a way to move away from growth as a mandate and move towards increase as a mandate. Um, so that's one key premise of Civium, right? First key premise is we need to find a way to move away from the city and all the characteristics that make the city the city. Uh, the second is, all right, one of those characteristics is this uh, notion of growth and the, the thing that is the right thing is increase, quality, quality of relationships specifically. And you can think about that quite practically. And if, I, if I'm moving into a city from a small town and I'm moving into a city of, say, a million people, how big is Melbourne? I think about three million-ish, give or take a million. Right. <laughs> so I'm moving from a town of about a, a, a small city of 150,000 and I move to Melbourne. Part of the point, part of the attraction is there's just a much larger potential of relationships. There's the likelihood that I will be able to find people who are um, high quality relationships for me. They have similar tastes or interests or whatever. It's just a lot larger, right? By in this case, two orders of magnitude. Okay, that's true. But it also has a real problem, which is, well, there's three million fucking people. And the reality is you're only ever going to meet a small fraction of them and only ever going to be in a relationship with an even smaller fraction. So beyond a certain small number, which is around 150,000 people or so, the bigger problem is actually search. <laughs> it's not mass. Right? You don't actually need, think about like the internet. The internet is vast. I don't need to have a bigger internet. What I need to have is a better way of finding the, one, the, the aspects of the internet that are relevant to me. And by the way, now. So that's another piece, right? When we start thinking about increase, we start thinking about quality. We start thinking about Oh, okay. Well, the move is to say, how do I move away from just adding more nodes to the graph and move towards getting better and better and better at finding the right relationships? Okay. Well, when I look at the right relationships, it seems there's three primary characteristics. One is who. So that's the easiest, right? Like right now, who, should I be talking to you right now or should I be talking to someone else? The second is what. Right? As we began the conversation, there's a very large number of possible things that we could have in our relationship and being able to orient on that what quickly and well is a, is a thing. 
And then in some sense, how, and, and how largely has to do with the skillfulness on both of our parts to enter into relationship, how deeply, fully, uh, how intimately, um, how sustainably, how resiliently, how anti-fragile can we actually make the relationship itself? In some sense, that's that, right? So then let me make another move. And I think that's probably, well, I'll stop for a moment. Okay. No, that's, I'm going to break that promise. I've got things are pouring in from the back of my head right now. Um, so the next move is, uh, is an insight that, that I had recently, and I think it's right. So I'll put it out there. I've already put it in a video, but I'll put it here as well. Um, one of the things that has been constraining the possibility of civium up until very recently is the, the obligate binding of the virtual with the physical. So when I look at that, that super linear scaling, and I look at it very closely, this notion of trying to squeeze as many bodies into the same space as possible, what I notice is that the thing that's really looking to be connected is not bodies, it's minds. The, the real thing that is actually driving uh, growth is minds, more minds, Metcalf's law specifically. Uh, it's communication is the governing protocol. And the reason why cities are cities is because up until very recently, the only way we could communicate was to be in person. And even still relatively until like, I guess, we had COVID, um, the bandwidth of communication, right, interpersonal embodied communication still dwarfed, radically dwarfed the bandwidth of telecommunication. But take the clock back 250 years and it was uh, obvious that if you wanted to communicate with other people, you had to be in the same room, more or less. So if communication between minds is the thing that wants to increase, no, sorry, wants to grow to all, right? It wants to be everyone, at least in potential. Okay, I get it. And, and so the city has been in kind of like dragging bodies along, trying to get minds into connection and having to deal with the fact these minds are connected to bodies. But nowadays, this is no longer, I don't think, a primary constraint, as we see in this call. You and I are not in the same room, and yet we're having a conversation, we're communicating. And it's not bad, right? It's not quite the same as being in the same room, but it's not bad. And I suspect on the one hand, we're getting better at it because we've been forced to by curfew and whatnot. And on the other hand, I think we can continue to get better at it with things like um, you know, photorealistic immersive VR, for example, uh, creating possibilities of increasing simulation of embodied experience. I'm gonna put a flag there, by the way, because that of course can be a terrible thing, but we're now walking the razor's edge between terrible things and awesome things. I don't think there's a way for us to step forward without having uh, both sides of the razor's edge uh, in every step. So what we can do now is we can decouple the virtual from the physical. And we can render unto the virtual what is the virtual, and now of course be liberated to render unto the physical what is physical, and rediscover in the physical what Tyson's been talking about. Right? The, the more natural, humane, human scale ways of life that are in many ways indigenous. Right? Having really high quality face-to-face -face interactions at the Dunbar level with other human beings, frankly, who we may spend large amounts of time with, you know, real deep woven communitas, um, and by the way, with nature, you know, really descaling the uh, these massively densified locations that separate us from nature, and finding ways to live lightly with nature. And I'm going to flag that as well. This is non-trivial. Well, in fact, if you want to, we can double-click on it because it's a it's an interesting point of contention, to be frank. But then you've got a really powerful new combo, right? A, a situation where there's a, a virtual 
and the virtual Civium is, is everything, right? So think of it as the thing beyond Facebook and hopefully radically better, right? Designed from the very beginning to actually be healthy. Um, but where everyone, all minds, at least all those who choose to be there, um, can be. Right? So it truly is a global community of minds. And that's it. Once you've hit that, there is no more to go. Right? All minds, at least in principle, have the possibility of being in connection with each other in a appropriately designed virtual. And then the flip side, the flip side of the Civium is a, uh, a global meshwork of holonically nested, so different levels of scale, but, but really focused on the lowest level of scale, on the level of neighborhoods and villages, of humans living in a uh, well, very humane, human-scale way. And, and I think I would sort of add a third piece to that, which is uh, my experience, and I think there's good reason to believe this is a general experience, is that the, the projecting of self, projecting of mind into the virtual is quite taxing. You know, a conversation of an hour in person, particularly a conversation of an hour in person, say in the forest, right, surrounded by nature, um, has a certain level of cost for me. I'm introverted. Uh, I think extroverts enjoy it. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I definitely hear you on the increased cost. I think it has a lot to do with audience. The digital is definitely a thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm sure you've had experiences as well of speaking on stage, perhaps, or speaking to a crowd where, let's say, your voice wasn't that well received as being something which was quite taxing as well. I agree with you. And, and there's something, there's like three elements to oh, that, that, is, we, it, that conversation, or sorry, that, that experience. Um, to be frank, makes me move to a toolkit that describes things like fields of energy. Yep. And I've had experiences where I actually feel the energy of the group increasing my energy on stage. But then when I get off stage, I feel like I got unplugged from a light socket and I'm wrung out. Mm -hmm. I've had experiences where it's been kind of a fight. And there's been, uh, and that also is quite draining. I've had a few experiences, but they're quite rare where what you might say the, I don't know, the spiritual or psychological, psychosocial practices of the group are actually highly nutritive. And so you walk away from the conversation with the group actually feeling refreshed. Yeah. Um, this is harder to do in the digital, but that's the point. So what I would point to is something like um, new shamanic practices, new psychotechnologies um, that bring into the nature of the virtual with some thoughtfulness so that we are not depleted we're not unduly depleted um, by our interactions in the virtual and also can take advantage of the way that we can recharge ourselves so much more effectively when the physical is really designed to be nurturing. Yeah, I hear you. So that's, that's one big run. There's another big run that we can do if you'd like that speaks more to the Civium, uh, just to the Civium from a different angle, but that's, that's a good bite for now, I suppose. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I certainly would like, you know, I am also conscious of time so let me see if I can provide a couple of things back here. Because, man, there's a few different roads to go on here, a few different tributaries. So, you know, I'm hearing a lot. And what I'm, he what I'm hearing is really good. You know, I think I'm, I think I'm with you. Um, if I can put things into slightly different language, it seems like, and it's going to be a bit ab like quite <laughs> abstract to begin with, but it seems like there's a value to be found in gathering around or near the center, right? That the center matters to the periphery. If we take like the heart, right? There's blood moving around the body. It's got to come back to it. I hear you when it comes, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, an analysis of city as being 
historically at least this movement of bringing minds together in relation as enabling increased wealth and innovation by this percentage increase coming of course at the expense of just broadly the infrastructure that enables whatever is around the center to in fact be nourished by what is in fact the whole you know so good i mean I did have a chat with a friend a little while ago, his name's Kieran, and he spoke to me about how, you know, his understanding of why cities came into being as they did had to do with um, protecting in physical space a store of value, right? The store of banks, fundamentally. Now, I don't think that needs um, challenge the notion of what we're speaking about. I think we can see it as complementary, right? If we're protecting something of value around the center, whatever that thing is, there needs to be a quite a precise um, formation of relationality, enabling of at least enough stability for the center to hold around that store of value, whatever it is, or that conception or sense of value. Well, we can, we can specifically point to the notion of stock, right? the notion of store of value. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of a perturbation at the origin point of city that, that one of the pieces is the separation of, of the human in complex flows and cycles into something that begins the process of extraction. And extraction is the movement that comes before store. I mean, you can't store anything of value until you've ex first extracted that value. And so it's, um, you know, there's a cycle. There's a, there's a separation. There's extraction. There's store. Then, of course, in the context of store, there's a number of different things that happen, including protect. Yep. 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 And, um, well, it seems like unless we're breathing that value back and forth such that it is not extraction, but a right reciprocal relationship, we are fucked. That seems to be how it goes. Although we kind of fool ourselves because we don't live very long and sometimes it takes a while to be fucked. <laughs> That's right. It can look real good. Yeah. If the short term, yeah. planning for the short term, if the short term is several hundred years, <laughs> unfortunately, it can be quite seductive to humans. Um, yeah. It feels like the long term if you're planning, if, you're, if your own personal planning horizon is shorter. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, worth, it's worth highlighting this as well, that I think the, the buy-in, which is probably the wrong terminology, to really grok and take seriously this whole domain of conversation requires honestly and with deep humility like really deep humility because it's not an, it's not it's not an easy task seeking to solve for where solve is not the final solution but is in some sense the right next step of relating to these grand problems of living together in such a way that endures in a way that we've never done before, in a way that is so drastically beyond what the lifespan of, or in a way that opens itself to enabling so many more lifespans than just that of the individual. And it's of course, not only about human beings, but the entire ecology as it has to be. Otherwise, you're not taking seriously this um, notion of breathing in and out, this reciprocal exchange of, mm -hmm. of value. Um, it just doesn't seem to work like that, right? I was watching a documentary about um, mushrooms, mm. um, which was quite wonderful. Fantastic fungi, I think it was called. I've seen that. Yeah. I mean, I just thoroughly recommend everyone check it out for just a, a visceral hit of nature presenting so many of the, um, the right so, patterns. So what comes to me as you say that is a, a trade, 
and, and I think it's a very good trade. And, and to use Verveke's language, because he does such a great job of making it precise, uh, it's a trade of relevance for salience. You know, the, the extractive life, at the end of the day, is actually a, a salience life. Salience here, in some sense, representing the, the like cotton candy, is super salient. It tastes really sweet. And if you lack a discerning tongue, you may think that it's super good and therefore attractive. And we'll choose to eat cotton candy over, uh, well, I guess the archetype is broccoli. And if you have a short enough time horizon, which in this case is usually about 45 seconds, um, that might feel like a good trade. But if you're able to metabolize or feel the, the consequence of, oh, wait, now I feel terrible. I feel sick. <laughs> and by the way, I only ate about three bites of this giant pile of cotton candy. You begin to realize that it's actually a bad trade. But, but the proposal I'd like to make is, um, it's not broccoli we're talking about. It's meaningfulness, even the sacred. And I think that's the trade. The trade is the trade of the, the merely salient, what is in fact ultimately the superficial, um, for the truly meaningful, which is to say the sacred. And... I think in this most profane age, that might be a trade that people can grasp um, easily, which is to say that once you've felt that trade, once you've actually noticed that it is possible to live life moment to moment in contact with the sacred and what that actually means and feels like, then that actually becomes a nice short-term trade. And you can just look at the thing on the left hand and thing on the right hand and choose the thing on the right hand. You don't actually have to try to trade your short-term success for something which is kind of an imaginary long-term, you can trade your immediate relevance, your immediate sacred, your immediate meaningfulness, fulfillment, and well-being for your immediate superficial, uh, your immediate super salient. I think that's a nice trade. I think that's one that is uh, plausible. Uh, and I would actually, by the way, say that that weaves into the second line of, uh, of the Sivium story, right? that trade that shift, um, consciously done and deliberately done, which is to say uh, what I just said. We can, we can actually look at it and think about it and get a sense at the level of things like cognitive science, what we're talking about here with some precision uh, and then say, oh, okay, okay, that makes sense. Uh, my heart and my mind can both say yes to this. Yeah. Yeah, the good flow, the good flow. I like that expression just in my own kind of, a kind of uh, a lower resolution way in, but you know, it's the, um, well, maybe, um, maybe like this it might take us a while to get back to the completion of that thought, but we don't have all the time in the world. You know, um, you speak about the value in linking minds together. And a few moments later, we're speaking about sacredness and we're speaking about a right relationality of heart and mind, mm. um, which mm -hmm. is in fact, the kind of <laughs> so perhaps it's worth just for clarity's sake speaking to these notions a little bit more it doesn't seem to me there can be minds in relationship with each other absent i mean for, for a very long span of time perhaps at all absent a right relationality of bodies being in together that might not mean we're necessarily right next to each other right but i'm doing something with mine over here um, sitting comfortably on a chair at least for now and the 
mechanism, which is not the right way of speaking about, but the link between us, like why, why we care about this at all. Like what, what is it we're caring and moving with, right? What is mm-hmm. the flow that we can be part of is not exactly just a flow of mind, right? It's a flow of something else. It's a flow of something that is constitutive of webbing, knitting together is the being together. Yeah, nice. Um, so can I sit back to what I'm hearing? I think it's quite beautiful. I, I like it a lot. It'll, it'll take me, I think, a while to metabolize it completely. But the, I mean, in some sense, the premise of what you're saying is, hey, look, this thing that we've been calling communication and perhaps communications channel and body are kind of the same thing. You know, so if I am speaking to you in person across a range of four or five, seven feet, um, I happen to be using air as the medium, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but my body is connecting to your body. There's a, a touch. There has to be. There has to be actual contact. And if I'm speaking to you across, well, I guess this is probably about 3,000 miles, um, pulling light into a camera, throwing the camera into a computer, throwing the computer up into a satellite, zipping it about and coming back down, I'm still touching you. The difference between the two is in some sense not existent. Our bodies are in relationship directly. We are... Uh, as as good as dancing, um, that's that's powerful. I think that's right. Actually, and that's very well put. Um, and this speaks to I think the hmm. Well, I don't know. I have to, it's going to take me a while to integrate that. Well, I think I mean, it speaks in part to the um, the gradualness of this process of um, coming into right relationship with. The who's with who I'll say some more things about that, but it's like feeling what the right touch is in this new channel, in this new medium. It's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, how much of our interaction is mediated here by the voice and listening? How much is mediated by what I've been able to learn about body language that you can see given this percentage of my body, right? I mean, certainly some. So how much are we sort of bootstrapping on what we've learned in traditional physical space that we're porting over here versus what is possible in terms of efficiency of interaction and integrity and integrity of communication precisely within this channel itself. I mean, these are also things in development. Um, and it's, experiments with this kind of thing like i thought about perhaps um not for this conversation in particular because it'd be almost too radical be almost too radical for me to be sitting down in that couch with like the 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 camera presented a certain way just like you know know, (laughs) cross-legged like really relaxed back like i would be if we were talking here you know i'd be like hey jordan do you want to sit down right and i'd be i'd be lounging a bit but i'm not lounging here i'm i'm forward right and that's respectful I'm here, I'm, I'm ready, and we're doing something here. I, I want to create something beautiful with you, and I respect you, and so here I am. And yet, this is taxing, because I'm in my living room, and I, I usually lounge over there. That's a lounge, right? So there's <laughs> so, many, so many of these signals. Um, and um, so maybe we could port this over to um, something that I do I do think about quite a bit and I think about when it comes to the question of 
what is it appropriate to record, i.e. kind of like when we speak about such things as sacredness, the very thing which we should be most careful about boxing up and pointing to and saying that is the thing right there and forgetting ourselves always in relationship with it as the kind of constitutive generators of it along with everything else in relationship, right? We come up, we come upon something and it's like, whew, we want to, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's water, it's water through a net. And so recording something is, is we have to be careful about it, but then, okay, I want to link this to something else. And it's the notion of hierarchy um, and um, the notion of heterarchy. And also <laughs> one of the sort of characteristics of game B um, so game B, as I've heard you describe with Jimra on a few occasions is characterized or aims at a kind of meta stability, broadly speaking, to my understanding, a kind of endurance and a kind of anti-fragility or at least resilience to perturbations, um, and change enabling of continuity of relationship and development. Um, network centric or network oriented network centric. Is that what you say is one of the other? characterizations that was an older formulation but yeah right okay okay um and another one is um non-hierarchical am i right with that mm -hmm. yeah so so this is kind of and, interesting and I, just to add to that it's okay. it's not um how to say it like ideologically extinguish the notion of hierarchy but rather um specifically about shifting the hierarchical to be of service Mm. There's a whole lot of this, like basically the unseating of something and moving into its proper location relationship. Mm. Uh, in, in many cases, the primary problems we're dealing with in game A is you know, the tools becoming the masters uh, or addiction. We've become dependent upon our tools and have forgotten in many ways that they were tools in the first place mm -hmm. and have taken them as, as, as obligate. Um, mm -hmm. and so uh, an unseating of that and a, and a repositioning things into right relationship is a big part of it. So... Good. Okay. Yeah, good. I mean, th that resonates very strongly. Um, it's, uh, it's perhaps not the clearest to say non-hierarchical, at least in terms of how it hits me. Because mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's definitely not. It, people take yeah. it as uh, meaning anarchic or flat, right? Yeah. Non, the word non negates yeah. hierarchical. So to complete then what I'm seeing, at least the, the kind of the right way to hold a notion of hierarchy, and I'd love some feedback on this. I'd, try to see it more clearly is something like more of a wave where you have natural peaks that give way to uh, something more flat um, and then to re-establish re again and that the, the peaks, hierarchical peaks would be something like, again, staying in a kind of metaphor space, but a kind of um, or one way to think about them. This is not the only way, but certainly not, but as a kind of ceremony where wisdom, learning, is actually conferred so that all reach that point. And so, when, and so I started off by talking about recording, and I don't think I would be so, um, so mix and match here if we had a bit longer um, <laughs> to speak. But there's something about the creation of artifacts and ceremony there's something about events and ceremony which seems 
deeply important. It's this relationship between process and event. Alexander Bard's always speaking about this relationship between process and event. Been obviously very interested in process and we're always engaging in events, but it's the kind of, it's, it's, it's a feeling of, a feeling into an orchestration, a kind of um, a summoning. You've spoken about meshworks. Like how is it that the waves then all of a sudden peak? Like what are we gathering around? Bringing back in this notion of, of center, like what, what are we gathering around? Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the notion of center, I think, is exactly the place to go. Um, uh, okay, so let's, let's maybe invoke the notion of coherence and the notion of center. Um, I'm not sure if values and purposes come in, but let's say there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a proper center. And by proper, what I mean is something like there's a, a distinct and high integrity shared sense of the what and the why in the context of some given event, uh, uh, very concrete. Uh, the, the church is on fire in our, our town village. Okay, well, that's the center. Uh, our collective intention, there needs to be no uh, top-down pushing. You know, there needs to be no formal structure. Our collective heads pivot in that direction. Our collective heart rates increase. Our collective eyes dilate. And then we begin the process um, in a space of coherence, meaning each and every are simultaneously uh, oriented towards the same center. Something must be done. I feel like this feels very Deloisian right now. Uh, it's not clear exactly what, but what, what must be done. The how is quite unknown, but the, the what and the why are. We need to put out the fire. We need to save the church. And the why is unspoken. It's a value. Right? The values are held in, uh, in common. There's a common orientation, a common basis of values. Um, so then we begin to shift from values to purposes. In the context of purposes, there is a there is a right. It's as simple as that. There's a sort of a natural, I used to talk about it with Schmachtenberg, there's a natural hierarchy. And there are, there are some who are properly the most capable of organizing people into the right kind of structure to be able to address the problem at hand. Um, it's unwise to put the two-year-olds in charge of, of, of managing the, the bucket brigade. Mm-hmm. Um, it is wise to put the ones who are stronger to carry the heavier water. I mean, it's not complicated yeah. if you sort of just deal with it. Though if you were calling it the bucket brigade, I think you might actually, that might be the toddler version, to be honest. <laughs> the church is burning, let's get the bucket brigade. Not, not yeah. a lot of water is going to make it to the fire, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. uh, having a, a two-year-old and, and lots of buckets and lots of spilled water. Um, but I think that's the key, right? When, once you have a proper center, uh, once there's been something where the, 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 the values have oriented a, a group of individuals into what is in fact a coherent whole around a what is now a shared purpose, then the right structure is just part of reality. And the right structure might be anything. It's hard to know exactly. Um, and part of the real skillfulness is to orient ourselves into that right structure. But oftentimes it will have a division of labor. <laughs> and that division of labor often will have different people taking different responsibilities. And in many cases, there will be a hierarchy because certain people will either be more skilled naturally or more skilled experientially and therefore it is appropriate for them to have more responsibility in the context of the nature of the purpose that is part of the shared um, the shared group one of the problems that i think we run into in our current context is that we don't have coherent groups 
You know, so we take mm-hmm. what are effectively are random strangers with quite distinct values and no shared purpose, and we force them to do stuff together. We force them to coordinate, and we create these weird truncating governance things like like democracy, where we it's kind of it is very much taking that peg. <laughs> it's it is no nothing more or less than forcing round pegs into square holes, um, and it's because of the the means and modalities of cosmopolitan cities. Uh, have required the forcing together and the admixture of uh, people into spaces that don't have the time or the space to find their coherence uh, and therefore has required that we build tools of uh, coordination, tools of forcing random groups of people into being at least somewhat effective and then imposing what then becomes formal hierarchy on the basis of that effective randomness. Um, and therein lies the problem. Right? So we might say that's another distinction in the difference between city and civium is uh, this notion of um, proceeding from coherent wholes on the basis of some sort of shared values that then have a, a, a proper center um, as a whole. And then from that place, the, their, their movement into how is um, more a problem of, of competence than it is a, a problem of, of, of process, formal process. The, the process is organic. There's that. Now, you brought up the other one. How did it work? Well, what I was seeing there was I was seeing my friend Zach Stein and his emphasis on teacherly authority or on education. And it's funny because if you wanted to make fun of him, you could notice that he's sort of, it's easy to know that if he's sitting in a group, what what he's going to bring into the conversation. Um, The word education will definitely come up. Um, But this is because it's a mess now and also is universally applicable. At all times, every relationship always has a educational content, right? That's how we do things. We're not just doing something. We're also growing our capacity in every, everything we do. And that creates a nice, I think, um, how do I say it? Signpost or orientation on what this sense of coherence and the sense of um, proper center maybe feel like. You know, if there's a the right relationship of the process, if looked at through the lens of education, which is from my point of view, the same as the lens of, of roughly the same as parenting, is you'll feel it. And right? if you feel the flow of education is, is there and ideally maximally, there really is a sense of, oh, I am growing as much as I can in the context of this encounter. I'm not just doing, I am growing. Um, that actually is a really good way of knowing whether or not you're in the right um, relationship. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'd say we have about a minute more. Yeah, which is uh, sad, but I guess it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, and there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, to be, to be honest with you, I think that, I think that around about three hours three and a half hours possibly feels right for me to get where it's possible to go in a way that would be very meaningful. And I think deeply valuable. There's, there's, um, there's something about pacing, you know, mm. Forrest speaks about the question of when as being a question of mysticism, the pacing of these interactions. I, I feel like in, in some ways I, you know, playfully, I didn't violate anything, but I, I jumped at grabbing a few things to bring into the 
the pot too too quickly and i could only really do that with you in this context because i i know you can kind of go all right <laughs> i was really throwing paint at the wall in some respects <laughs> <laughs> but you know we can more gently you know um, make those brush strokes well why don't we just make a commitment to having two and a half more conversations That's okay easy. okay we can do that although the half might be challenging but this was good <laughs> i think um <laughs> what we do is we'll split it right down the middle so instead of doing it this way we'll do it this way yeah yeah good well i think you know i think there's um you know in the first little bit there um a nice introduction to civium and for those people who are listening to this there are breadcrumbs to follow for ways to be involved in conversation now um that's something that you know i'm facilitating with other people through this conversation and these kind of mutual learning environments which nora bateson speaks about but you know this isn't something that um you have to put down and then be in complete um, discontinuity with there is real opportunity it's just people here that are open to having conversations so yeah, look at the description and all the rest of it. And if you're interested, it's possible to, to speak. So yeah. All right, Jordan. Well, it's good to see you. Good to see you I too. hope you're very well. Hopefully um, curfew wears itself out and you're able to go back outside and uh, congregate. Good heavens. Yeah, the journey continues. That's for sure. All right, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. Gone. The, the thrill is gone.